You are listening to Holding Court with Patrick McEnroe. Thanks to Raya Eyewear for sponsoring this episode of Holding Court. I've been wearing Raya since last year. During the pandemic, I started teaching more lessons than ever before, especially outside. Raya are by far the best sunglasses for tennis I've ever used. Check them out at RayaEyewear.com. That's R-I-A-Eyewear.com. And use the code PATRICK to get $20 off your first pair. They are total game changers. All right, time for another edition of Holding Court. Patrick McEnroe here, and uh, boy, what a pleasure it is to have this man on, who, whom I've known for many years. My wife has known him for even longer, and he's one of the great baritone voices on Broadway, and he's just got an unbelievable resume of television and film uh, and concert work even more recently. And I was lucky enough, uh, Mr. Norm Lewis, to actually watch your Christmas show live streaming Okay, or, or whether it was just, you know, you recorded it, however you guys do that these days from uh, 54 Below, which I know is one of the great venues in New York City where many of you Broadway legends perform, usually for a bunch of people. This year, a little bit different. It's been just a wild, crazy year, but uh, I very much appreciate you coming on with me and telling me what's going on in your life. And most importantly, Norm, how is that tennis game, please? We could always start with that. Well, listen, I... I think that I could probably be uh, a pro now. I think I could turn <laughs> pro. As, as much tennis as I play on my phone. <laughs> uh, right. Well, but, you, but you know, Norm, you know that in the, 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 uh, one of the good things for tennis in this pandemic, this is for more sort of recreational tennis because professional tennis is a little bit, I mean, it's been able to go on a little bit more than your world, you know, the Broadway world and the concert world, but uh, still right. the, the, the tennis tour has taken a huge, you know, hit for, from a lot of things. Wimbledon canceled for the first time ever, since World War II uh, this past year, mm -hmm. ho hoping that it happens this year. But anyway, the tennis plane has gone up exponentially in the last year because it's one of the few safe things you can do physically and social distance. So we need to get you off your computer tennis game and onto the courts, and you got the man right here ready to take you on. Absolutely. I'm ready. I'm ready. I'm ready. So, so I want to, I, I do want to ask you about your, your, first of all, your, your tennis game. You tell me a little bit about that just before we get into your career, because I've obviously seen you do, do so many things and I've always admired you and your career, but also just you as a person. Um, so growing up, you grew up in Florida, right? Right. I grew up in a small town called Eatonville, Florida, right outside of Orlando. And for me, I was good. I was good at sports. I was always having fun playing basketball, football, uh, baseball or softball, whatever we played. But when it became serious, when people started kind of getting really intense about the game, that's when I was kind of like, uh, I kind of backed away from it. So mm -hmm. it, it kind of discouraged me. So I was never really the good team player when it came to that. So I found a sport that was, um, you know, that I could do individually. And if I messed up, I messed up because of me, not, you know, I didn't hurt anybody else. Um, so tennis became like my, my church. I literally mm. was obsessed with tennis uh, at age 10. Wow. I, really? uh, there was a guy that was in our neighborhood that taught for free mm -hmm. and we had a few champions. We had a few people who uh, got tennis scholarships and, were ranked really high in Florida, um, and 
so I loved it. I mean, I had Bjorn Borg on my wall and Jimmy Connors and your brother and just a lot of different people that were on my wall because I wanted to be a tennis player. Arthur Ashe. Wow, really? Um, I didn't and, know that. Yeah, and I, yeah. we traveled around the country and played at a lot of the uh, – uh, definitely the Florida circuit, you know. Like but by the way, if you, if, yeah, if you make it in Florida, I mean, you're a, you're a player because oh. Florida is like the toughest section. You know, we call it a section because we have the, we, where the USTA divides the country right. into sections. So Florida is considered its own section. And if you can make it, if you're one of the top players in Florida, you're one of the top players in the country. Yeah, and we had a really good program. And I did pretty well. I mean, I wasn't, you know, fantastic. But I did okay. I was a good player. Uh, and then I would travel to the United States playing in the uh, American Tennis Association. And okay. so uh, I got to, to do a lot of it – was, it was great. It was a great time of my life. And um, I remember my dad uh, going with me to a lot of these events. And he said – you know, I remember him turning to me one day. I think I was about 14 years old. He said, if it wasn't for you, my son, I wouldn't be allowed in this club or you know, things like that. So it was really interesting the dynamic back mm -hmm. then. Uh, I didn't realize the importance of what I was doing. Right. But uh, now as an adult, I do. And so um, I played in high school. Um, but then by age 18, I knew that I was going to have to either really commit to this mm -hmm. and um, in, uh, invest more money or, uh, right. or have to find something else. Right. And so I, I found... Uh, performing uh, to become my new obsession. So that's what happened. Well, you, know, happened you know, a lot of tennis players love um, singers and performers. That's why, partly, I guess, why I married my wife, Melissa Erica, who's right. worked with you. Um, but, you know, my brother's always been into, you know, you know, got into playing guitar and being, a, you know, a pseudo rocker kind of thing. And, and, mm -hmm. and, and a lot uh -huh. of singers that I've spoken to over the course of doing this podcast, uh, like you and uh, Seal, who will be in season two of my podcast as well, just obsessed with tennis. So some great people that really love the sport. But I want before we get into your career, you 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 got me with the American Tennis Association because that's the African American sort of tour, correct? Right. Okay. Right, so right, so, but right. you also said like you weren't. You know, t talk to me a little bit about that and also about what your dad told you because I find that you know I had some some guys I played with. Um, that were African-American, that were top juniors, right? I remember Brian Shelton uh -huh. from Alabama, and he was he's now the head coach at Florida, and Mal Washington, who went on to become a great pro, played at Michigan. Mm -hmm. So, you know, now with, with, with all that's happened, right, with, um, um, you know, BLM and just, you know, everything that's happened, it, it's, it's made me kind of go back and go, man, what was it like to be those guys, you know, playing an all, basically an all-white sport? Um, in the, because I didn't think of it in those days. Those are just guys I competed against. They ended up being, you know, real good friends of mine. But what was it like for you as a young black kid growing up in Florida, um, you know, playing whether the tournaments that were mostly going to, you know, clubs that were, that were white or then, you know, playing on the African-American type tour? What was it, what was it, you know, kind of that whole experience like? It was, you know, it was, gosh, how do I explain it? Um, it was different. I didn't feel any tension. I'll put it that way. I mm -hmm. felt very welcomed, and uh, but I did know that you know the people, my the generation before me, uh, there was a woman by the name of Tina McCall, uh, a, a young lady by the name of Sherry Ware, and uh, Kevin Kevin uh, Barnes, and these were people who were like five years older than me, and they went through it a little bit because mm -hmm. they were in the late '60s, getting into the '70s, and so there was a they they 
they did confess that there was some a little bit of backlash in some cases, but for the most part, they did really well and were ranked really, really high in the state. And so, um, but my generation kind of, they, they kind of knocked that door down. And so uh, I think that I was uh, uh, saved from mm-hmm. a lot of those uh, oppressive times. But being on the uh, ATA tour, right. uh, I, you know, I got, I got to meet amazing people and uh, Zena Garrison was part mm-hmm. of that. And so was uh, Lori McNeil. Lori McNeil from, and, from Houston, yeah. Houston, yeah, and there was a guy named Rodney Harmon. I don't know if you remember. Sure, him yeah, or not, Rodney, missed- yeah, Rodney, Rodney actually worked for the USTA when I first got there, um, and he worked for many years as a coach. And then he went to, I think he's still the head coach at Georgia Tech. He was also, you know, heck of a pro. Got to the quarters of the U.S. Open one year. Yeah, yeah, I remember that. I was so excited. I was so because I saw these, people, you know, these people I touched and knew and mm-hmm. got to, you know, meet and stuff, and they were making it in the in the world of professional tennis. So. Um, uh, but it was exciting. And so uh, I knew that I was good, but I wasn't great. So I had to make a decision. And so somehow the universe uh, uh, allowed me to find singing and performing. And that became my new obsession. All right. Well, let's, um, yeah, let's, and, get, let's get, yeah, tell me how that happened. Because I actually didn't realize you were that into tennis. So this is like a total bonus for me. I was, I was pumped to talk to you, but I didn't realize you really played, wow. I mean, a pretty high level yeah. junior tennis. All right. So you get the... You get this um, new obsession. How did that come about? And uh, I guess you said you were 18 when that happened. I know you had a lot of other interests growing up as well. But what was the what was sort of the moment for you? I know my, my wife tells me she went to see On Your Toes when she was, I think she was 13. And in in, her parents right. took her to see the show. And she was like, wow, like how do those people do that? That's what I want to do. And then she started, you know, gave up gymnastics and got into, uh, you know, uh, uh, dancing and singing and so on. So what, what you were a little bit older, but how did that transpire? So what happened for me, you know, growing up, I did like variety shows. I really got into those, the Sonny and Shares and the Donnie Marie's and mm-hmm. the Carol Burnett's and stuff. So I remember seeing those people who I admired, but I never thought of myself as that. I sang in church, mm. but that was basically a, a, a kind of a rite of passage because my grandfather was a preacher. My dad was a, a deacon. So I kind of had to do things and be a part of the church. And it, I didn't know I had a voice. It was just something I did. Um, and then at, by age 16, I was in high school and I had to uh, take a, an elective to graduate. Uh, you know, you had to have so many electives. And they put me in home economics. I'm like, oh, I don't feel like cooking or sewing at this age. So <laughs> right. let, me, let, let me go to, uh, you know, I sing in church. Let me go and try to sing in the choir in school. And I went over there and auditioned for the guy. I think I sang Yankee Doodle Dandy or something. And uh, he had me going up and down the scales to see what my, my voice was. And he said, you know what? You, you have a nice voice. And that was the first time I really ever heard that. Um, and so uh, by being in the choir... It was my aha moment. It was mm. the first time I'd ever started singing, you know, in different languages and then Broadway songs. And, mm. you know, I never sung that stuff before. So it was eye opening. Now, I continued doing that for my junior year. And then my senior year, I became, uh, I was in one of the dance choirs. So right. I got into the dance choir and got kind of, uh, you know, extra performing time and I got my first solo and Mm. people were like, wow, you have a good voice. And so that kind of stayed with me Mm -hmm. in college though. I was still very practical and I majored in business. I was like, I can't, you know, I can't fall back on that. Right. (laughs) Right. Yeah. And I'm not that good of a singer. You know, I just didn't, I didn't have that sort of confidence. So I ended up uh, 
singing in choir, but I majored in business. And I kind of just went mm. through that. Uh, I went to a junior college the first year, uh, first two years, because I got a scholarship to sing in the choir. And then um, I graduated and went to a small school called Rollins College. Oh, and sure. I majored in yeah. economics there. Right. And, um, and I didn't finish because I ended up getting a job working in advertising for a newspaper, and they were going to send me back to school mm. to finish. But that didn't happen, and I ended up working um, on uh, transitioning onto a cruise ship. Now, how I got that job was I would work at night, uh, during the day uh, in advertising, but then sometimes I would sing at night at different bars mm-hmm. and contests, things like where, that. Where, and there was was, this, was this still in Florida? Where was this? Still in Orlando. Oh, yeah, in Orlando. Still okay. Orlando. Still there. Okay. And, and the newspaper was the Orlando Sentinel. Right. And so uh, – and so this guy saw me who was a producer of a cruise ship mm-hmm. that was there at the bar one night and heard me sing. And he's like, hey, I need somebody to take this slot. How do you feel about doing that? And I got offered a job uh, wow. right off the bat. And I went to my supervisor the next day and I went to my fi- the woman who was my fiance at the time and asked both of them. I said, what do you think? And they kind of said, you know what? Go for it. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what I did. And I met people on the ship. In the show, who were professionals, who encouraged me to move to New York. Right. And that's kind of how it started. Amazing. This episode is being brought to you by Raya Eyewear. Over the last few years, a growing concern of mine has been the long-term effects of overexposure to UV rays from my extended time on court in the sun, you know, following that little yellow ball all over the globe. Well, I was also just tired of squinting on sunny days, but my fear was always that wearing sunglasses to protect my eyes would affect the way I hit the ball. Well, last year, especially during the pandemic last summer, I came across Raya, and I'm so, so glad that I did. Raya is changing the way tennis players see the game and protect their most important performance asset, their vision. All of their eyewear is handcrafted in Italy and built specifically to enhance ball contrast and provide protection from those harmful UV rays. There's no question that they help me see the ball better, they relax my eyes in the sun, and they've become an essential part of my tennis experience. Check them out at RiaEyewear.com. That's R-I-A-Eyewear.com. Use the code PATRICK to get $20 off your first pair. I promise you will love these sunglasses. This episode of Holding Court is being brought to you by True. That's T-R-U, the lifestyle beverage. Absolutely amazing. Go to drinktrue.com to learn more. I suggest you try out the True Sampler, 30% off with the code PATRICK. What was your first show ever in New York, and how did that happen? Well, my first, I moved here in uh, 1989, Mm -hmm. and uh, I just went to everything. I, unless they specifically asked for blonde hair and blue eyes, I showed up. And I ended up getting this job uh, in the ensemble of a show, Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat, oh, sure. in Danbury, Danbury, Connecticut. It yep. was, uh, um, what's it called? It was called Candlewood Playhouse. Oh, sure. And, yeah. But, we, but we, were, we rehearsed here in town. Mm-hmm. So it was kind of cool that I got to rehearse in town in New York and uh, uh, I call my mom. I said, I got a job, you know, it's 150 a week, but you know, they right. want me, you know, they like, me. right, right, right. So it, it just kind of snowballed from there. Um, and, uh, I just kept at it. Uh, I, gosh, I, I worked that entire year. I really went mm. from job to job to job, which was very lucky because a lot of actors don't get that. So I was very blessed. 
Well, you've been through, I mean, you, you know, obviously your resume is, is amazing. And obviously you, you, broken, you broke ground often many times by being the first African-American to play, you know, King Triton and the Little Mermaid and Javert and Les Mis and, um, and Phantom as well. So what was, I mean, I, was, was any one of those like the most important? Were they all important in different ways? How did, how did it feel for you to be, you know, in that position, which A, to, you know, get a great job, but B, to do something that no one um, of your ilk had ever had, had been able to get that job before. And how did that resonate with you? That was, you know, that's a great question because I, I was looking at it as just getting a job. I mm-hmm. literally would show, I show up and if, uh, and hopefully people will give me just the chance to be in the door. Um, and I was, I will say far as uh, Les Mis, I had auditioned for them years ago for another role, and then they, the, the, the Cameron McIntosh organization put me on hold for that, and mm-hmm. then they kept me and put me in Miss Saigon. Mm-hmm. So I became okay. part of the Cameron McIntosh family. Right. Then later on, when we did the revival, then they called and said, hey, how would you like to play this role? So that was a blessing. Then I have to give Tom Schumacher over at Disney just major kudos because of the fact that they are so diverse in their casting, no matter what show it is. And the fact that they had me come in for King Triton, um, along with people who were Asian, people who were white, people Mm -hmm. who were black, you know, they wanted the best person for the job. And, you know, I'm not saying that I was the best person, but at least they wanted to at least give people a chance to come in and, and for them to see them. So I love that. As far as Phantom, that was something that I had, I had coveted that role for so long. Mm. I wanted to be in the show and especially being the Phantom, but I didn't think I had a chance. I, like you said, I'd never, they'd never had an African-American play the role on Broadway. They did in Los Angeles with Mm -hmm. Robert Guillaume and he was someone who I stand on the shoulders of. Oh, sure. He's one of the all time greats. Yeah. He's so amazing. And he also has a major, you know, people know him from movie and TV, mm-hmm. but he's got a major theater background. But it was one of those things that I thought, well, you know, he's a star. So they gave him that chance. But now, now it's not stunt casting because he actually was someone who could sing it. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I was like, maybe I need to be a star. I got to become a star. Right, in order to right, that right, role. right. But the opportunity came about and I went in and auditioned. And I just remember... I auditioned on the stage of the Majestic Theater and with Hal Prince in the audience. And, and so um, I just remember waiting before they called my name. And I felt, this is going to sound really weird, but I felt the souls of people past and people who were still living, uh, like William Warfield and Paul Robeson. And then mm-hmm. there's Andre DeShield and other people who were still living at the time that I just knew as friends and knew who I admired. And all of them were saying to me, go get it. Just go get it. And that's, kind of how I went out there on that stage and sang my heart out and I luckily got it. Amazing. And by the way, my wife, Melissa was reminding me, um, before we did our, our podcast that, uh, of a couple of things, but that when you played King Triton, she took our three daughters and they were just blown, yeah. blown away. She said, "Oh yeah." She said, "We went backstage to see Norm, and the you know the girls were little, and they were just totally mesmerized by you and your performance." So you were doing something right in that show. <laughs> yeah, I love. I actually you know? love that, that that show. It was a beautiful, beautiful show, and I hope it it makes a chance to come back to Broadway again because it's it is really, really amazing. It started. It actually started that whole musical 
thing with mm-hmm. uh, Disney. You yeah. know, they revived all that. So we um, hope we that, listen. That, that, we, we we all hope that it that it comes back. Period. Okay, and uh, right. So exactly. so, so let me let's get into that a little bit, just as far as because you and I had a you know kind of a fun chat before we did this, just about what you've been doing and you know all the zooms that you singers have been doing and the things for for <laughs> free and uh, you know just trying to you know keep yourself out there. But I did watch your your Christmas show, which I know you've become sort of famous for over the last uh, number of years. Usually, it's obviously live but uh it was it it was an unbelievable show so entertaining that you were able to pull it off you know on a on a stream and be on the stage it must have been nice to be back at least on a stage right with a couple uh musicians and some other singers that you brought in so just what was that whole process like and you know you don't get the same uh the the feedback you know it's like you you do this great song and you're you're you everybody's like waiting to hear the cheers and it's like just silent that's crazy right exactly well, it felt good, and just like you said, it was one of those things that just was such a blessing because I'd been doing the show for five years before that. This was going to be the sixth year at, at the venue of uh, 54 Below, but uh, obviously the pandemic put uh, a, a, a block in that one. But um, but uh, when they came to us and said, hey, how would you like to perform uh, and do a Christmas show and we'll stream it, mm-hmm. we jumped on the idea, and we decided to go whole hog and we yeah. got amazing uh, videographer and director and uh and we said let's just make it like it's a, a tv special mm-hmm. and that's kind of what we did knowing that there was going to not be an audience we didn't want to make reference to like oh here the applause you know that we right. don't want that we wanted to like everybody knows that that's not going to happen so what you do is you try to transition from song to song and you tell a story and uh, you relate to the people who were on stage and say, Oh dude, you played that well. Or, you know, just mm-hmm. like, I, and I'm one of these guys that admired the rat pack so much. And their motto basically was, I'm going to have fun on this stage. I hope you as the audience member has, has as much fun as I'm going to have. And so that's been kind of what my show is. Uh, and I, hopefully that translated on film. Oh, it did for us. I mean, we were loving it. And, I, you know, you had such a diverse um, sort of array of songs. I, you, you've already told me a little bit about your background. I think you, had, you did a little Marvin Gaye in there, which was awesome. You had right. uh, a gentleman from, I think it was from your ch- church here in, in New York. So you got into that. Obviously, you did your, your Sondheim and your great theater songs as well. But when you, is how has that evolved, you know, the concert work? Because obviously, I've, I've, I've dealt with that experience it with Melissa and sort of how that's, you know, she's been doing that for years, but is, do you, do you feel like for you, it's almost become like an, an outgrowth of your, your own theater work. It's like, you know, you obviously you go and you do a show, you know what you have to do. You have the character, but what is the process like for you of putting the concert together? Like, is it trying to do like you, you told me about, you know, the old, the old, shows you used to watch on the TV specials, you know, where you do a little bit of this, a little bit of that. That seems to me where you go with it. You get a little bit of all the different things you've done, but it's kind of like a nice way to express yourself, isn't it? And about you make it about what you want to do rather than you've got to play this character in this show. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. And the thing about it is that you do bring, because in a concert you bring who you are as opposed to hiding behind a character. So, you have to show and tell stories about, you know, what people are interested in. People really don't care about the song that you sing. Mm-hmm. They care about your relationship to the song. And they love to hear little stories. It's like, oh, I didn't know that. You know, those kinds of things that 
they're like, oh, wow, you, you got to work with this person or you, you know, fell down the stairs and tripped in, and fell right in front of Sydney Portier and all you can think about is four game best. I mean, you know, I'm making something up, but right, right. people love to hear stories. And I think that that's the main thing about um, doing concerts. And I've got a great, great, great team of people, you know, starting from Richard J. Alexander, who's a director and friend and, um, and also my uh, musical director, Joseph Joubert, who's just tremendous because he's not only from the church and in playing like gospel music, but he also has a master's degree in classical piano. So he has the wide yeah. spectrum. Yeah, yeah that, totally. Now, um, and it's, just, it's been great. It's just been, I, you know, it's, it's kind of been my second job, you know, besides mm-hmm. doing TV and film and, and stage. What was it like doing the uh, Spike Lee movie? Because that, that, that happened, was this, was it, la- it was before the pandemic, wasn't it? Or- yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. That was, uh, yeah, that's, that's, as they say, a Spike Lee joint. Yeah. We, uh, we did that back in 2019. We were, we flew over to Thailand. Wow. Do you remember when he won his Oscar yes. for Black yes. Klansman? Yes. So a week later, he flew to Thailand and then, uh, we met him maybe like a, a week or so, a week and a half after that. And, um, and we stayed over there for three months and went to Thailand and we also went to Vietnam and it was just amazing. I been on TV sets. I've been on uh, movie sets mm-hmm. and worked, but this was the big budget one. Like right. this was like extremely mm-hmm. uh, amazing. And uh, I got to work with icons, uh, Delroy Lindo and Isaiah Whitlock and Clark Peters and, you know, the great late Chadwick Boseman. Oh, and, right. And you, you know, people didn't, we even, didn't know. We didn't know he was sick, right? We didn't know he was sick. I mean, wow. he did everything we did at running up and down terrain and it was hot. It was Anywhere between uh, 96 and 115 some mm-hmm. days, you know, like, and we had to wear all that fatigue and all that heavy stuff and the guns and blah, blah, blah. But he never complained and he did wow. his work and no one ever knew anything. So unbelievable, man. What a, what a God life. Rest his soul. Oh, you're absolutely yeah. right. So where do, where do we go from here, Norm? Well, first of all, let me tell you where you're going to go. Okay, you're going to come to our McEnroe Tennis Academy, okay, because it's right there on Randall's <laughs> Island. So I need you to get over there because we were having a fun chat um, the other day just about the way the game has changed. And I was explaining to you like the old school game, you know, flat, you know, long strokes, timing the ball. Believe it or not, I find in teaching, which I've been doing a ton of the last, you know, practically five, six years for kids uh-huh. is like a lost art. Like kids don't know how to do that because you were saying you want to hit more topspin. You want to play, you know, the quote unquote, the modern game. Well, the fact that you right. have the skills of sort of like that. I we, Look, we're about the same age. So I grew up with wood rackets, learning how to play with a wood racket. I didn't switch into a graphite racket until I was, I believe, 15 or 16. Okay, so all the way I okay. learned, learned how to play was was similar to you. So uh, the point is, is that what's old is new again. Like I try to teach kids. Oh. Yeah, I try to teach the kids how to like, you know, no, no, don't hit topspin. Just feel the ball, control the ball. Because if you can do that, then you can pretty much do anything with the racket. So we need right. to get you out right. there and I need to assess where we're at and then we'll take it from there. Absolutely, man. Because I tell you, I remember my coach was so strict, he would not allow us to play basketball, mm. and he wouldn't allow us to swim because it said they okay. used the wrong muscles. Right, that's interesting. And especially the basketball because it was the flick of the wrist. Right, and right, right, right. He, he wanted you to have a stiff wrist. And so nowadays, it's like, 
people are hitting the ball like like when they play racquetball. They're just yeah. like flicking it. It's amazing. I know. There's like, so wow. much torque. It's like it's like it's like the harder you swing, if you can control it, the more control you have. But that's interesting because a lot of I, right. I I love it when kids play soccer. I think is is it's great uh, sport for tennis. I think basketball is good. I don't know about the flick of the wrist. I mean, the movement and the agility is key. Uh, how would you des- right. how would you describe your game? Like you big server, you get a, you know solid forehand. You like to come to the net. You play baseline. What would you say? Well, this is the thing, and I'm gonna I'm gonna tell on myself uh, a little bit here, uh, but uh, hopefully I'll be okay with uh, this and won't get judged on it. But I re- I remember learning. I had a crush on the woman. Her name was Tina McCall. She was my mm-hmm. next door neighbor, right? And she was the one that introduced me to it. So I played like her. Oh, okay. And I ended up, and I had a, I ended up doing uh, what was it? My grip. It wasn't the Eastern. It was continental the Western grip or semi-Western, maybe. Uh, no, not. I didn't do continental. I okay. started with the Western grip on both sides. So I had a, a oh a, wow, a, a two hand. I had a two hand backhand with the the, um, the Western grip. Okay. And I was like progressing very quickly. Mm. And then these guys uh, who were older, they were the same age as Tina, came to me, and that was part of our group of you know tennis mm-hmm. players. They came to me and I said, well, Norm, you know, that's not really masculine. You might have to change over to the Eastern and the Continental. <laughs> right. So right. I ended up switching because I didn't want to be, you know, look like I was, not, I was out of place. Right, right. So it was, a, it, it was really interesting how my game went. It declined after that. Huh. Um, See, that's why you got Yeah, you got it. Yeah, I, I wish I could have been there for it because you got to play with what you got. You know, that's a part. That's part of the thing also about it, teaching kids is like, you know, you see them do something a little bit. Well, that that's not exactly textbook, but you know what? If you can do it right, right. and you do it well, because I always find that tennis, your game is sort of a mirror of your personality. You know what I mean? Like, right. you know, like my brother right. was super aggressive, super intense. That's the way he played. I was a little more laid back. So I was a little bit more of a counter puncher, you know. So it's like, it, it you know, Federer is like just maestro. And so he plays all these, you know, Nadal's like just a you know, an animal, he just comes at you with all his intensity. So that's why as a kid, I think you have to kind of, you know, stick to your guns. Like this is, this is my game. This is my style. Right. I wish I had, I, I wish, you know who I played like a little bit? I oh. would say, uh, Harold, remember Harold Solomon? Oh, sure. Sure. The, 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 you had Solomon Harold. and Dibs, the two guys, the two, did we call them the bagel twins? Right, right, right. And I remember that uh, Harold had kind of the same sort of uh, mm-hmm. backhand I had with the, with the uh, Western grip. But, you know, life, I, life takes you where it, 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 you know, your destiny and where, where it's going to lead you. But I, um, I really still enjoy it. I still watch it. I still love you. I think that was one of the best things that the universe did for tennis. It put you as a commentator because oh, I thought you man. keep it coming, I, no, keep I it coming, you Norm. You're too, you're too kind. No, but you yeah. do. You yeah. did such a wonderful job. Of, uh, listen of, to you. You know, pointing out what people are doing, their flaws, their their uh, their uh, triumphs, their everything, and it's uh, and you get along with all the you know the people that are uh, commentators there. So. It's all good. It's all it's all learning about uh, that from you know being around the musical theater. You know, for the last twenty some years, <laughs> I met you during Amour when you were in Amour, the Michelle Legrand musical with my wife Melissa, and uh, you had a which was yeah, a blast. Which was a, such a fun we show. We didn't last yeah. that long though. Yeah, I feel bad. We didn't last that long, but it was such a great show. She was so perfect for the show, and the wonderful thing about Michelle Legrand's music, it was someone uh, described it as you know there was no one hitting any high seas or mm-hmm. belting any big numbers, but it was effervescent. And yeah. I was like, yeah. 
it was a really cute effervescent show. So. It should have been should have been like an off Broadway show. It could have run forever. Yeah, you know, like a little. But yeah, you, but absolutely. but but I do remember one thing I remember about you from that a show was I don't know if it was before the sh- uh, show opened when you were in rehearsals. It might have been after because, as you said, it had a relatively short run. When I think you said to Melissa at one point, "Yeah, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm going, I'm going, I'm getting back into real estate. You know, I'm going into real estate." Because I, <laughs> I remember, I'm like, "What is this guy saying? This guy's unbelievable." And then, but now I know why because you know you'd studied economics, you get a business degree, you always are smart, Norm. But you know what? Thank goodness you've stayed on the stage because that's where you belong, my friend. You're awesome. Well, thank you, man. Thank you. I'll pay you later. Uh, yeah, and I'll pay it's, you it's, later uh, for the commentary, but we'll pay each other <laughs> off. But seriously, I do. What, what, tell me what's next as far as your career goes. What, what do you got in the, um, in, in, in the basket that you're working on? And obviously, we're all hoping to get back to you guys being able to perform maybe this summer, we hope. Right, yeah. Right now, um, you know, I lost like everyone else. And, and please do not cry me a river because I know a lot of people are in worse Mm-hmm. Worse conditions, but I lost all of my jobs, yep. uh, you know, when the pandemic happened. The one that I really was disappointed about, I mean, I was disappointed about all of them, but the one that I really, really wanted was back in October, I had been slated to, uh, I had been in this venue before, I performed there with other people, but I was going to make my Carnegie Hall solo oh. debut with the New York Pop. Wow. And I was wow. like, oh man. Yeah. But it's, you know, we're working on trying to get that back. It'll uh, come back around. Again. Yeah, but, it'll um, come around. But, um, since I lost my job, I got, you know, again, God, the universe, whoever you believe in, uh, uh, blessed me with, um, I, uh, I got three TV shows this past fall. Uh, I got to do my Christmas concert. I've done yep. a lot of Zooming and Force Master Classes, things awesome. like that. Awesome. Great. I'm, uh, I'm shooting a TV show right now. I, you know, I can't say any of the names right now, but I'm shooting a TV show right now. Um, and I'm doing, you know, I got to go to Chicago and do another uh, virtual virtual uh, concert awesome so life is good life is good man good man well you keep it going and uh in the in the in the midst of all your uh tv work and your concerts you got to come over to uh, the tennis club and i will uh you got you and i will swap that ball around a few times all right absolutely that's a that's a definite and i want to give a shout out to our, our friend eric schuster who's so sure. cool at the oh, USDA. Yeah. he's the best he's the best he, he's a great he's a great connector he knows the people that love tennis and uh he's been helpful to me and i know he's he's helpful to guys like you and that u.s open comes on hey can you can you slide me in there eric you got me give me give me some tickets there so we we, we love him yeah we love him and we and we love you especially yeah he, was, yeah he was responsible for me singing at the men's what was it 2015 i think when um i got to sing the national anthem for the men's final um uh, at the US, at the uh, U.S. Open, yeah, amazing. Um, and it was for um, uh, it was the fifteenth year, I think, of uh, the nine eleven. So it it actually worked out beautifully. It was amazing, uh, and I was so honored to be a part of that. And he was a big part of me getting that. Well, you are uh, hit it out of the park as you always do. You keep up the good work. I will give my wife <clears throat> um, your best, of course. And uh, I will look forward to uh, seeing you on the courts and hearing you sing, man. And you keep it keep it going, okay? All right, brother. Thanks so much. All right, the great Norm Lewis here on Holding Court. Holding Court with Patrick McEnroe is powered by Mudhouse Media.